Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside the Digital Health and Sales Locker Room. Today's episode is a special episode as a part of a three-part series, RPM March Madness, bringing together some of the brightest minds in remote patient monitoring with a March Madness theme. Part one is action-packed, so enjoy. Welcome everyone to the podcast and super excited for this expert panel of RPM experts from all over the U.S. and I guess the globe. Um, so appreciate everybody joining. So for the listeners, I would love for everyone to introduce themselves. So I will start with Ashley and we'll go roundtable like um, for some intros. Hi, great to meet everyone. I'm Ashley Seth. I'm the vice president of our health system partnerships for a company called Cadence. Um, Cadence is a clinical services and technology remote patient monitoring company for patients with chronic conditions. Um, and I've been in the healthcare space for 15 years now partnering with health systems. So excited to speak about RPM today. Caitlin. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Caitlin O'Connor. I am a partner at Nixon Gwilt Law. We are a healthcare innovation law firm working primarily with innovative healthcare providers and digital health vendors. My role has been to lead and grow our firm's remote monitoring practice. We do a lot of sort of general remote care management as well, but my focus has really been on remote patient monitoring. I've worked with over 100 remote monitoring companies from around the world, and I'm really excited to hear from the other experts that we're talking to today and share what I have seen over the last several years. Fantastic. Go ahead, Mitchell. Thank you, Josh. A pleasure to meet everyone. And thank you for having me. My name is Mitchell Fong, currently the vice president of the American College of Healthcare Executives Nevada chapter. Most recently, I served as the vice president of virtual care for renowned health and integrated health system in Reno, Nevada, um, overseeing all of our virtual care telemedicine from both a payer perspective as well as a provider perspective. I've been in the digital health space for about 12 years and um, have extensive research and done my master's on the need for telemedicine and digital health in rural America. So really excited to hear from the rest of the panelists and a pleasure to be on. Thank you, Josh. And finally, Nathan, to round us out and, and make us global. Um, you know, we won't even mention what time it is, but uh, welcome, Nathan, and uh, introduce yourself. Oh, yeah, thanks, Josh. I'm just, I'm really keen to speak about remote patient monitoring. But uh, yeah, my name is Nathan Riley. I work for a company called Charles and Morris, who are a talent firm and we hire globally. And so my role is hiring specifically in remote patient monitoring. So working with majority of the startup companies in their talent identification, acquisition uh, and retention as well. So, um, yeah, a lot of my work involves kind of networking and being as close to the ground as possible and trying to do my work as effectively as possible that way. And uh, I got into this space, I'd spent a couple of years recruiting in the assisted living and skilled nursing facility kind of space and saw kind of firsthand during COVID what benefits the right technology could bring to those spaces and to, to healthcare in general. So when Charlton Morris were developing a, a digital health team focused on recruitment in that area, uh, it was just a bit of a natural fit. So yeah, happy to, uh, happy to be here. Well, welcome everyone. And this, I've, I've got the fortunate um, events to be able to 
you know, collaborate or meet or uh, be, be a part of all of these individuals. So glad to have everybody out there. So, um, you know, from a format perspective, we're going to dig into some different topics and different questions. And the first one that's super important for me is, you know, we talk about a lot of different areas of remote patient monitoring, but one of the most impactful things in my career remote monitoring was um, seeing the benefit from a patient and clinician perspective. So I'm going to start with you, Ashley. I always like to, um, you know, there's, we can always focus on the challenges and things like that, but wanted to focus on, you know, maybe you sharing your most memorable RPM, either patient or clinician story. And um, I'll kick it off with you, Ashley. Awesome. Yeah. I think we hear countless stories every single day um, from our clinical team. So excited to, to start the conversation here. Um, one story that I thought of initially because it really highlights how at Cadence we incorporate remote patient monitoring and also clinical services to give patients lifestyle coaching and everything they need. I think that that's so important. Remote monitoring, the technology piece is just one small component of how do you impact a patient's life. Um, there was a 70-year-old patient in Washington State. He was our one in our hypertension program. So we, he entered the program, had high blood pressure and back pain, and he was, he was a longtime smoker. Um, so our team not only was monitoring his daily vitals and helping him to reduce his blood pressure, but what was interesting is we were really supporting him with the education component of remote monitoring. So understanding the why behind his treatment plan, diet education modification, um, and also helping him to reduce his smoking in half um, and just learn more about how diet impacts his vitals every day. Things like he was eating a bag of jalapeno chips that he was addicted to and he needed to reduce his coffee intake and reduce his water. Didn't realize, you know, where he was on, on either of those outcomes and how they impact his vitals. So um, to me, that story was impactful. The patient ended up with, after just a few months in the program, normal blood pressure readings consistently cut his cigarette consumption in more than half. And his, you know, he, he's gone on to be really healthy and a patient of ours. So it just reminds me of the, the holistic need to incorporate remote monitoring with, um, with, with clinical support and care. Yeah, that's a powerful story, Ashley. It's almost like, and I tell people all the time, all that started with you know, a cellular blood pressure at the patient's home, right? But then, um, you know, that kind of was able to enact everything else downstream and impact a uh, patient. Um, what about you, Caitlin? I know you have a unique perspective because you've kind of been working um, on, on, on some of the legal side with all these RPM companies, but interested to see your, uh, your perspective on, on the patient or clinician story. Yeah, this is this is a difficult one for me to answer in just like one example because I really have seen so many um very similar to ones that Ashley shared. But so I kind of want to give two examples, but I'll be as as fast as possible. The first one I think is like a broad impact, right? Since the advent of remote monitoring five or so years ago when CPT code 99091 was first introduced, we've seen the like standard of care evolve 
to include RPM. So I think one of the biggest impacts that I've seen is that evolution toward RPM or, or remote monitoring truly becoming a new standard of care. I think all of us in the next three to five years are going to have wearables or some way for our providers to see our health data and to be healthier on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and that's been really, really cool to see. So that's kind of like a meta example, a meta impact that I think has been really, really exciting. In terms of like a very specific example that I always like to share as well, one of the coolest things I've ever seen is one of my clients who has a really exciting augmented reality software platform that helps pediatric patients stay more engaged in their physical therapy regimens. And one of the most amazing things they did during COVID was they struck a deal with one of the largest children's hospitals in the country to implement their software in every single room in the pediatric cancer ward within this children's hospital because these the, the pediatric patients, these children with cancer, were not able to leave their hospital room for months on end. And so by implementing this software on the TV screens in every single room, they were helping these children get out of bed and stay active and transmit that data to their provider in another location. So the provider could stay up to date on, is the patient moving around today? How are they feeling? And things like that. And I think that was you know, I think pediatrics is one area where we don't think about RPM quite as much because we haven't really gotten there yet in terms of, you know, central centralized regulations and reimbursement like we have for Medicare and, and elderly patients. Um, so I always like to share that example as well, because I think that impact was just absolutely amazing to see during COVID in particular and, and beyond. Yeah, that's super impactful. We could probably do a whole whole nother episode on the pediatric implications and some of the, the opportunities there. I just read a book upstream and, and that gets to it, you know, starting RPM at that, that pediatric age, I think can have some, some great effects. Um, Mitchell over to you. I know you have, you know, very great perspective, you know, most recently working kind of on the health system side. So I'm interested in, in your perspective around here. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And I'm going to kind of follow Caitlin's blueprint here and share something broad and a couple of different examples within it. But really, I look at the time of COVID and the onset of COVID for us, the community was really distraught. And when I think of remote patient monitoring, it's how do we help improve the quality of life for that patient and their family members, right? And not just the patient, but also the clinicians. And so with that, as we implemented a continuous post oximetry monitoring program for those COVID patients, it had various different impacts but some of those were allowing patients to feel like they could be supported. They weren't isolated in a room where they were treated almost like an inmate, so to speak. Um, and they were able to get home, be in their own bed, use their own shower, watch their own Netflix, be around their family. And just the different stories that came from that from the patients was incredible. Some of them were crying, saying, I never would have thought I'd be home for my anniversary or for my birthday. We also had some patients where we were able to get upstream and diagnose undiagnosed cardiac issues because of the pulse oximetry monitoring. Uh, and I think one from a clinical perspective that's always interesting to me is we had so many clinicians that were um, 
second guessing the technology and the impact that remote monitoring can have at the home. But after having this program in place, I then had clinicians begging me if they can add more and more patients to the program because they can actually deliver higher clinical quality care at home for these patients. And so I think just looking at the impact that it's had from the patient perspective and really seeing that quality of life improvement and then hearing clinicians say it's improved their ability to deliver appropriate quality care that to me is kind of a holistic summary of a couple of examples of what's been really intriguing and impactful for my side. No, it makes, makes such a, such a huge difference. Um, and moving over to you, Nathan, and I'm interested uh, kind of on your perspective because you, you, you work with some of these you know, stakeholders in a completely different fashion on kind of the staffing and recruiting side of RPM, but um, would, would, would love to hear your perspective uh, on this topic. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I started to think about it because, like you say, I'm not necessarily on kind of the front lines of things. So I kind of looked at perhaps from a, a personal aspect where I've seen the effects of RPM and where that's influenced. And I think Mitchell just touched on it partly then in terms of the, the social and, and real life aspects to this being home and being there and available to meet with family members and special occasions and that kind of thing. Um, for me, I had a family member who battled with dementia during the last stages uh, of her life. And then once um, we managed to get um, a personal emergency response system um, and a wearable around a wrist in RPM fashion, I mean, it not only improved kind of the care that she received through that time, but you kind of saw the the pressures alleviate in family members as well and people that are around that area. So it's not just the effect, I think, on the patient in general, but they're also those that support those people around that. And that goes from yeah, clinical staff all the way through to, I think, friends, family members and yeah, people in life that generally we all we all care about. No, well, appreciate you guys um, sharing because I think that the most important takeaways for me is remote patient monitoring is and is going to continue to make you know significant difference in patients, but then also to clinicians. Um, so uh, we're going to switch over. We're going to we're going to fire a couple rapid fire questions. So what I did in a very non scientific way is I kind of you know gathered some data, asked some people on you know what are some of the you know the 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 questions that are um, the most important for for RPM. And so we're going to fire a couple of different questions. So I'm going to start with you in reverse snake order, Nathan. Um, so question number one is, um, you know, we, we heard about all the things that are great from RPM, right? But it's, it's, it's the early stages. Um, so what are some of the biggest challenges you see with the current state of RPM? So I'll start with Nathan. Uh, yeah, a couple of things. I think kind of from my side in the, in the broader area, I think the overall adoption of the technology will be kind of one of the challenges going through. I think most of the people at the moment that need this technology might not be overly familiar with kind of, you know, that form of technology. I mean, for example, might not even have Wi-Fi in their homes, that kind of thing. So how do we push that level of adoption through to that area? And, and perhaps something more specific to kind of my work and where I see things is from a people perspective. I mean, we've seen kind of mass layoffs uh, in different areas, big tech companies all the way down through to, to startup companies, which is affecting. So I think longevity and, and the organic growing of companies in the space will be quite key to, I guess, continue competition in the space. Competition brings success. It brings new things to the, to the for all. So how can we make, I guess, remote patient monitoring a stable work environment for the highly skilled people that are working it so they can see the progressive future careers for them and uh, continue to change the space in that way. So I think it's it's already started a little bit from my perspective of what I see. Um, I mean, companies are still keen to bring in talent to the to their companies and still keen to 
improve upon the people that they have, but it's being a little bit more strategic about the hiring. Do we need this person right now? Is this the correct move for us for kind of longevity in that sense? So, uh, yeah, that's where I see personally on a kind of a day-to-day a bit of a challenge. No, agreed. Nathan, did people look at you like you had two heads when you started telling them to come sell remote patient monitoring or RPM, you know, at one point in, in, in your life? <laughs> a little bit. It was, um, I think what I've found is the, the transition from other areas of digital health. This is a really, really interesting space. So people are keen to, to move into it. And yeah, it's just uh, kind of finding the right technology to fit their kind of ambitions in the space and making sure that all syncs up correctly. That's the, that's the tough part. Yeah. And switching over to you, Mitchell, same question, because I'm sure you guys had a different, a unique perspective um, with, with some of the work you did even early on with RPM and, and through COVID. So what are some of the challenges you saw? Yeah, definitely. I appreciate what Nathan said. I think the human aspect of it is one that we have to think about. And I'm always one that believes when you look at any new innovation, you have to look at the unintended consequences, right? We always have a value proposition that we're trying to achieve. But how do we ensure that we're not exacerbating disparities because of that unintended consequences from the health literacy, from the technology gap, from the broadband gap with that? And so with that, Um, We want to make sure that we're addressing those and making it available for all patients. And furthermore, that kind of ties then to reimbursement to build something that's sustainable. If certain payers aren't able to uh, meet the need or the reimbursement level doesn't dictate that all providers can deliver that care, it's something that's going to build inadequacies across the network for all those patients. And from a population health perspective, I think that's challenging. And so um, the last part of that is data without action is meaningless. And so you can collect all the data that you want, but if you don't have the operational workflow in place and the resources to deliver interventions or care to the patients, it's great that you're collecting the data, but you're only doing half of the battle and you're really then not able to create the meaningful, valuable impact that you want for those patients. Um, So that's kind of what I think are some of those things that we have to think about in addition to that experience that Nathan really already highlighted. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And this is an audio medium, but I said, you know, amen there to, 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 to Mitchell um, you know, in, in the video chat. So what about you, Caitlin? I can't imagine that there is any, um, you know, legal challenges, um, you know, they're setting up and um, in anything regards RPM. Yeah. So one, Mitchell, I think you and I are going to be kind of repeating each other as we go through this episode because you stole both of my options. Um, but so, so absolutely totally agree that like the technology is still a challenge. We need widespread broadband access to rural populations in particular and underserved populations more broadly. Um, that's just not there yet. And so as valuable as RPM is, as great as it's been to see the transition from just Wi-Fi based devices to cellular based devices, there's still so much more that can be done and so many more people that don't have access right now to this technology. So that's one thing. Um, also reimbursement, that's kind of the world I live in every single day, right? And and it's amazing to see Medicare, who is kind of, been, they've been somewhat proactive in reimbursing for RPM and RTM and remote monitoring generally and other types of virtual care. But a lot of commercial payers have not, and a lot of Medicaid programs have not adopted those same reimbursement rules. And so I think reimbursement and just regulation 
generally is going to be somewhat of a challenge. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, all of the MACs, the Medicare Administrative Contractors, which are the entities that administer reimbursement for Medicare claims, met to hear from a bunch of subject matter experts uh, on the efficacy of remote monitoring. It was a great panel. There were 55 doctors on the panel who all spoke so highly of RPM. There were, you know, professionals from ResMed and Mount Sinai and the largest health systems we know coming in and talking about the value of RPM that they've seen in their patients and the improved outcomes and the reduced costs and all of the amazing things that RPM has to offer. But the, but the fear is that meeting, the intention of that meeting was to potentially come up with local coverage determinations related to remote monitoring. And what that means is we are potentially going to see in the next couple of weeks proposed rules that will limit reimbursement for RPM even at the Medicare level or for remote monitoring at the Medicare level. I can't guarantee that, but that's what sort of the industry is a little bit, we're kind of bracing ourselves for that right now. And, and I think that my takeaway from that meeting was the data is still so young that there isn't enough of it to determine how to limit reimbursement appropriately. And that if we start to limit it now, it's too soon and it's going to leave out a lot of patients that could really benefit from remote monitoring. So, so, you know, I think just to sort of echo Mitchell, I think one is the technology. And then I really think reimbursement and regulatory challenges are going to be another huge sort of barrier. You know, I don't want to say it's going to be a 100% barrier because we do have reimbursement, but I think there's just again, like so much more to be done that we haven't even scratched the surface of what reimbursement and regulation can do for for the growth and improvement of RPM. Agreed. Anything you'd add on the on the on the challenges side, Ashley? Yeah, certainly actually, Kaylin, I think I'm um, building off of what you just said about, you know, we really have only scratched the surface. We haven't even really scaled RPM to the, the millions of patients for many use cases where it could be valuable. And I think like, as we've all talked about, patients really love RPM in general. Um, some may be slower to adopt than others, but patients feel cared for. They feel supported, watched, safe, um, especially after COVID. People are more comfortable with it. But yeah, I think a lot of studies and even a recent one I just saw the other week um, are showing patients really feel the most comfortable sharing that private health data with their providers directly. So the the challenge that we've seen in, in the earlier days at Cadence is really that we need to build physician adoption and comfort with and trust with, with deploying a technology, um, which, you know, there's there's many barriers to doing that. And, and so for us, the, the way to really achieve that has been making sure that they understand um, this is really improving their standard of care, that their patients really love these programs, word of mouth is spreading. Um, and really in our early launches, only a handful of our physicians in a clinic would be willing to participate in the program. And that's, that's a huge barrier. If your physician isn't ordering this for you as a patient, you're doing this in a vacuum, it's really not as effective. And therefore this isn't going to scale like it needs to, to, to the people that need it. Um, and now as we've been you know, doing this for many months, we're seeing a majority of physicians start to have patients come back, talk about the great outcomes, share how they're actually feeling and the, the, the you know, the benefits they're seeing with RPM and how it can make 
their lives better. And it's really causing this kind of circular effect that our physicians are adopting this more. They're seeing the benefits of patient impact. So I think that was a barrier and it's, it's a continued barrier to drive adoption at scale for us. Yeah, no. And, and, and question number two, I think dovetails into what, what you guys all kind of alluded to, but, you know, I think working with a lot of the clinicians, but even on the vendor side, um, you know, a lot of people, there's, there's, there's a lot of either misconceptions or, you know, lack of understanding on like, like, how does it actually work? And so, you know, question number two is, you know, maybe some prescriptive examples or some takeaways on, you know, how RPM can operate in a fee-for-service, but then also potentially in a value-based world. And I, I think people are familiar with the codes, but happy to touch on there. But um, maybe some real-world examples on how you've seen this played out um, to, to truly make um, something. So I'll start with you, Ashley, um, on, on question number two. Sure. Well, just speaking from, I guess, the vendor standpoint here and exactly to your point, Josh, I mean, I think as we're partnering with health systems, as we do, we need to ensure that we have a flexible model that is reactive and responsive to both the fee-for-service world that we're in, where there are codes to reimburse for RPM, but also as a lot of our health systems are operating with a subset of their populations and value-based arrangements, we need to be adaptable to that too. There's there's total cost of care savings on the line that we can serve to help reduce by effectively deploying RPM with them. So I think um, RPM partners really have to be willing to take risk in their arrangements with health system partners alongside them to support their broader quality goals and outcomes, but also help make these programs um, billable and effective and have a financial ROI uh, to make them you know, to ensure that there's longevity of these programs too. Yeah, I love the themes of being flexible. And um, I, I do think it's played out that the companies that are kind of w really w willing to risk uh, can, can, can play it out. And Caitlin, you touched on it, but I know that um, everybody, I, I remember when I was in the RPM space, I was just waiting to hit refresh when Nixon would kind of, you know, um, th throw their Medicare changes and, and their thoughts and you'd go through all those, you know, lengthy documents. Um, but, um, you know, interested in your perspective on um, how the models and how some of the companies or health system side have, um, have you know, ev even created business models out of this. Yeah, I think that at this point, every one of my colleagues and all of my clients know that the Medicare physician fee schedule proposed rule when it comes out in July or June is like my Christmas. I get so excited. I'll spend the whole weekend reading thousands of pages of regulations and just like writing all about it on LinkedIn. I get so excited. It's like the most, it's like the nerdiest thing about me, but I really do get excited because of the impact that those regulations can have, right? Like I get so excited about changes in rules around reimbursement for remote monitoring and virtual care, because I know that so many of my clients are going to be able to take that information and do amazing things with it. So, so yes, I get so excited. Please follow me. If you want to see like the first, uh, the first updates on what comes out in those rules, I'm always sharing them. Um, but to answer your question, question directly, how can RPM operate in fee-for-service and value-based care? First and foremost, I'll keep it kind of simple. I think the coolest thing about the fee-for-service aspect is RPM and, and remote monitoring provide recurring revenue for both the provider and the vendor, right? So, so Ashley, maybe at Cadence, you guys have a model where you're charging a monthly fee. I'm guessing here. I don't work with Cadence, but, but maybe you go and you're charging a monthly fee for 
access to the software and the technology, similar to a sort of straightforward SaaS model. And for your provider, it's great because even though they have a recurring monthly cost, they also have recurring monthly revenue. And that's kind of unique when it comes to fee-for-service reimbursement. Um, a lot of codes are limited to, you know, once every six months, or there are, you know, different kinds of rules that limit how often you can bill certain codes. And for remote monitoring, it's very clear you can bill these codes on a monthly basis. So I think in a fee-for-service world, you know, there are a lot of ways it can operate. But one of the one of the things that I think has helped my clients who are mostly the vendors like Cadence, the most successful is that it offers that recurring revenue to both parties. And it's sort of a mutually beneficial relationship in the value-based atmosphere. It's already happening, right? I think there's a lot of like, how are we going to make value-based care happen? How can RPM be valuable in, in, in value-based, in a value-based environment? And there's certainly a lot more potential, but it's already happening. I, I learned recently that a lot of hospitals and large health systems are using RPM, but they're not often billing fee-for-service for it because they can't in a lot of instances. Hospitals can't bill Part B fee-for-service under Medicare in the same way that providers can, but they're seeing such great income, uh, I'm sorry, improved outcomes and and reduction in costs from, you know, avoiding hospital readmissions, avoiding emergency room visits. All of these things are finally coming to light where in a value-based environment, those are the things we care about. And we finally have data to actually prove it. We've been saying for five years, like RPM can do all of these things. RPM can reduce the cost of care. RPM can keep patients more engaged. It can improve outcomes. We're finally seeing data that actually proves that. And a lot of hospitals and health systems are already doing it where they're not relying on that fee-for-service. They are relying on the, the improved outcomes and the reduced costs and things like that. So I think that's kind of, you know, I think that's sort of how it can be successful and is already being successful in a fee-for-service world. And again, how RPM is already benefiting value-based environments as well. Yeah, Mitchell, perfect segue to you because I know you have a lot of firsthand experience kind of uh, on, the, on the health system side. So uh, this, this question, pass it over to you. Yeah, thank you. A tough act to follow, actually. They took a lot of the things I was going to say. So, Caitlin, you were right earlier. Um, but really being on the pay provider side, you do see a lot of that, that challenge with what's our model, what are we going to do, how are we approaching this, and how do we define the ROI? Is it from a fee-for-service, the revenue? Is it from a value perspective, the outcomes, and looking at both of those? So I think it's very important that we look at what Ashley said to partnership with payers, vendors, and systems. I think having that relationship for a mutual gain is something that we really need to look at to operate in both the fee-for-service and a value-based world. And I'll just take a step back and really say, if we look at the value proposition, I know that's kind of my core theme and what I always like to look at is, what are we doing it and why? And if it's really to ensure that every patient gets the right care at the right time and the right place, then we can figure out a way to find an equitable solution to work together and be able to deliver that. And so I I really think that as we explore how to be successful in those different models, you're gonna be looking at implementing different tiers of remote monitoring technology and intensity based on the need for the patient. Some will need high intensity continuous monitoring. Some will need more population health monitoring and some are need more chronic management. And so that level of care is going to be different and building a 
cost-efficient, sustainable model is something that health systems will have to do so they, they can ensure that they're building something that can be profitable because I believe that every health provider is likely not going to be 100% value or 100% fee-for-service. So you're going to have to operate in a blended model, and therefore you're going to have to understand how do we provide equitable access to all of our patients to this high-quality care through those programs. And so looking at it from that what perspective, I think define your ROI and your value propositions for each of those different models, determine how you're going to approach those for each of those conditions and build operational workflows that allow you to be successful in those different models. And that will require different levels of technology. But interoperability and leveraging data, I think, is what's going to be critical because the data you get from that is not only going to be useful for that single episode. The data that we can gather with building personal baselines and then being able to then use that over time to trend patients and look at their overall health for the longevity and the way that I think of it is a health system should be there for a patient from birth to death. You're then going to be able to build a much more personalized health plan for every patient and truly be a partner in that patient's life instead of a vendor, if you will. And that's kind of what we are as healthcare providers. We're there when we need you, right? Or when you need us. But the reality is we need to build something that's more patient centric, where we're there to support the patients as a friend, as a family member throughout their entire life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and Nathan, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball on you because I think um, what's, what's, what's interesting is when you're looking at you know, sourcing talent or you know, when, when, when you're working with some of these you know, top digital health, you know, sales, sales specific people, um, you know, how much of thought goes into whether the company is kind of, you know, working on the fee for service side of things or value based care? And do you play a little bit of a matchmaker on, um, you know, on, on candidates and, and companies and, and in the space? Interesting on your perspective, just kind of from a um, sourcing perspective. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. I think certainly, like you said, if um, particularly if I'm looking at uh, a kind of an early stage startup, for example, and they're wanting to become more commercial within fee-for-service care and you bring in, you know, the first commercial lead into that company is quite key. They understand that process. Um, and so being able to, yeah, understand where the, the skill set is on their side, where they're comfortable working with and uh, matching that up to, to where there is, it does come into play. Um, I've found that in general, though, um, most people who've worked in this space for the past two, three, four years are pretty familiar with both and, and I think have been, um, yeah, quite understanding in, in the ways across there. So it's something we look at, yeah, for certain, but um, not something I think which has become kind of critical in, in a search process. Yeah, and, and I think to, to dovetail on that, um, you know, wh where have you seen kind of the evolution of remote monitoring and, and the merging of, of certain technologies? Um, you know, I think that we've talked some hospital at home, you know, bring your own device, virtual care. Um, where, where have you seen some of that evolution and that, that synergy within the two? I know you talked a little bit about interoperability, uh, Mitchell, but, um, you know, where are you seeing some of those common themes, um, in, in your opinion, Nathan, as our final question? Um, yeah, I think as it's been kind of covered across the area, I think it really comes down to, to preventative care at the end of the day. I think that's really where it comes down to. It's it's being proactive instead of reactive in healthcare. And uh, I mean, there are kind of studies everywhere. And I think Caitlin touched on it earlier where pretty much, you know, everybody is going to have some kind of fitness tracker, some wearable at some point. And I think as we as individuals become more understanding of those data points and understand the actions behind that. We will become more 
influenced on our own behaviours there and, and in terms of yeah, being more preventative in how we kind of go across that. And I think from that, it'll be quite interesting to see more the influence of the larger big tech companies. So Apple, Google, uh, Amazon invested into One Medical, what their focus will be. Will it switch from the very consumer driven, which it is at the moment, into more of a patient driven area um, as more of us naturally kind of transition into that area? I think that will ultimately play a big part in the positioning of the technology on a global scale, to be honest. Yeah, agreed. And, and Mitchell, interested in your thoughts on this. I know, you know, you, you and I, I think first potentially linked up around hospital at home, but interested um, in kind of where you see in the blended of the technologies. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I agree with Nathan. I think preventive care is going to be something that we definitely can highlight with the technology and to your point, the hospital at home is gonna really push the transition of care delivery from, and it's already happening today, from our brick and mortar facilities to the patient's home. And the more and more we can get proactive upstream and intentional with what we're delivering to those patients in their home, the more we're gonna be able to have a meaningful difference in their life. And so I think as we look at the future of virtual care and hybrid care modalities, the more we're gonna look at the remote capabilities, the virtual capabilities, and really just how do we truly be there when the patient wants us to be there? I look, I, I look at virtual assistants, bots, um, your Alexa devices, right? And we think, how can we leverage them further to truly impact the overall health of a person so that they feel supported? And I, I always throw this example out there of from a health system, it's not just our job to be there when they need us. It's our job to be there whenever they want us. And I think that's a very different story when we look at monitoring and proactive, because sometimes patients want us when it's not reimbursable. And that changes the value proposition and how and when we deliver that care. So that ability to use data and to leverage those different devices from those wearables, bring your own devices to a higher fidelity um, clinical device that's, that's wearable. I think that's going to be important. But further, I really think the evolution is really going to change the way that we recruit and we staff and we build our clinical models. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges that we see as a barrier for moving all of this forward, which I probably should have mentioned more earlier, which is how do we ensure that the technology and the models that we're building can be clinically supported with the right resources and that we build something that doesn't create technology burnout for those clinicians that are going through this transition to deliver that to the home. And so I think that's a, a very interesting aspect of it. And then the last part is again, equitable access with those remote communities, those remote populations. We wanna make sure that we can deliver this to their home, but how do we do that effectively with that technology? And I think we're gonna see a lot of evolution, a lot of partnerships, uh, and I'm really excited to see where it goes. So um, thank you for that question. Yeah, and, and Caitlin, I'm sure you, you talked a little bit about the evolutions. Yeah, I have so many thoughts here. Um, if you haven't learned it already, I'm bad at choosing. Um, when I have multiple <laughs> things to choose from, I'm just going to say all of them. So I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of predictions. Um, this is like the world I live in every day. I'm trying to figure out what is this industry going to look like in the next six months versus three years versus five to ten years because – in a big way, that means what does my firm look like? What does the, the success of my firm look like? Because we work in this industry so much. Um, my like most hopeful prediction is that in the very near future, we see national widespread reimbursement from Medicare to Medicaid to 
Medicare Advantage to commercial payers. And, and there's never a question of whether or not remote monitoring co- is covered. It just is because it should be. That's my most hopeful and optimistic prediction. I'm not going to give a timeline because you never know with those kinds of things. But if I could, you know, choose one thing, if I had, you know, one wish from a genie, that's what it would be. Um, in the near, in the more near future, I think a couple of things we're going to see are EHRs start to actually provide remote monitoring. Um, and I think that's going to be actually another challenge for industry because if the RPM vendors are not providing higher quality remote monitoring than an EHR can provide, that's going to be a big challenge because Every hospital, every provider group, every health system has an EHR. And if they can get remote monitoring through their EHR, it's going to be challenging for the third-party vendors to to remain successful. So I think they're going to have to step up their quality of service. Um, And that goes back to a lot of what Mitchell and Nathan are talking about, which is like, how do we staff? How do we build these models in a successful way so that the vendors can still succeed? Um, So that's you know, sort of a near-term prediction. I've already seen it with a couple of EHRs. I think, you know, we've already talked about it a little bit, but I think we're going to see more payers take risk and front the cost of uh, remote monitoring technology. I think payers are going to cut deals with RPM vendors and say, like, we're going to give all of our beneficiaries a blood pressure cuff or all of our, you know, diabetic patients are going to get this connected glucose monitor and we're going to provide the, you know, it, go, it goes back to the pay provider conversation, right? I think we're going to continue to see that blending of providers and payers. And with that, I think we're going to see payers take on that risk of remote monitoring and, and fronting that cost of the, the technology. Um, I think we're also going to see a lot of streamlining and consolidation. We're already seeing lots of mergers and acquisitions. It's no secret that fundraising is tough and cash is tight in digital health right now. And I think that's going to result in some fat trimming around the edges of the RPM industry with some vendors who haven't really picked up scale by now. I think they're going to fall by the wayside. Um, And I think we're going to continue to see, you know, Larger consumer brands, Best Buy, Google, Apple, which a couple of us have already touched on, acquire those RPM companies and start to provide those services themselves. So, again, some stream streamlining consolidation. And then the last thing, which is a little bit more of sort of a negative, that um, although RPM vendors and providers have massive amounts of data, that data is biased. And that can be a huge problem in value-based models and equity and other areas where we're going to start relying on AI and other and data analytics platforms and things like that that are relying on this data we've been collecting over four to five years from well-served populations and that is excluding those underserved populations, which I'm concerned is going to create some long-term impact if we don't figure it out now. If we don't find a way to get that technology and collect the data from those underserved populations, then what follows is biased value-based models, biased data later, biased analytics, and and biased AI. Um, so I probably should have started with the with the negative and <laughs> finished with the positive. Um, but, you know, I think that's one of the longer-term predictions as well is the data we have right now is biased, and I think that could result in some unfortunate circumstances later if we don't address it now. Yeah, and, and and last question there to you, Ashley. Yeah, I 
A lot of great answers <laughs> that, that I was going to touch on. I think just in general, more of that the macro position um, that I really see is that RPM is just going to become the standard of care. And we can really do this at scale if it's done right. And Caitlin touched on a lot of the, the ways that maybe we may run into specific pitfalls and how vendors may approach um, this across the country. But, you know, just, just thinking about our lens at Cadence, where our focus is really on chronic disease management, when we think about um, how many patients in the Medicare space, especially that have major chronic conditions that we specifically focus on, like heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, um, the list goes on. That number is just continuing to increase. So I think there's just a massive opportunity here when you think about the, the hospitalizations that are happening annually, the hundreds of thousands of deaths that are happening, unfortunately, um, and, and really patients who, from their standpoint, are waiting not just weeks, but many, many months. There's ridiculous wait times, especially with overburden and staff shortages relative to primary care providers that these patients are not getting access to quality care. When you think about rural populations, you know, they're waiting months to see these clinicians um, when remote monitoring can open the door to allow them world-class care in their home um, from, from people all across the country that are clinical experts right at their fingertips. And so um, I think the use case where it's really going is it, to really help underserved populations and improve health equity in general. Got it. No, all, all super important topics. So we're, we're down to, it wouldn't be March Madness. I, I, I made the entire group. So we're, we're down to the final segment. So this is the RPM cutting down the net future prediction. So Two important ones. Number one, I asked everybody to give us their final four prediction. Uh, we won't even touch on my bracket, but, um, you know, the, they're able to, uh, you know, call it second chance final four prediction. So final four prediction and then any final thoughts on kind of, you know, what RPM 2.0 is going to look like or how kind of you or your company is helping. So I'll start with you, Ashley, final four prediction and then any final thoughts from the group on what RPM 2.0 might look like. Sure. Well, um, my bracket is totally busted, but I will say um, if I was to pick my final four and a little geographic bias here, I'm in San Diego. So I'd go with uh, San Diego State, Tennessee, Houston and UCLA still in it. So fingers crossed there. Um, and on a on a work note and how, um, you know, we can really a cadence focus on progressing remote monitoring forward, I think. Uh, it's it's really making sure that our solution is seamlessly integrating with all the digital health tools that patients and providers are currently utilizing. So it, it seamlessly integrates into workflows and becomes a standard of care in the future. Um, and, and really also wrap it into the broader chronic care management programs to, to help these patients manage these disease states and, and keep them healthy. Um, so that's where we are focused. Love it. And doing some great work there. All right, over to you, Caitlin. And you can only choose four because that's the definition of a final four. Um, how, how is it trying to pick where, where to eat, you know, up, up at your place, right? You know, you have all these different options, but final know, four and then, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then one last prediction. <laughs> 
All right. I'm embarrassed to share my final four, but I'm looking at my bracket. I have Alabama, Marquette, Xavier, and Kansas. So I'll tell you, Kansas really hurt me. Really hurt me. My bracket is really struggling since they lost. But what I'll also tell you is I am balancing my risk in my FanDuel account by betting on all the teams there that I chose to lose in my bracket. I'm betting on them to win in my FanDuel account. So either way, I'm winning. That's that's my bottom line. Um, I did pick Alabama to win, though, so I'm still holding out for, for that success. That's still possible. Um, in terms of how me and you know how my firm can help in rpm 2.0 like my my favorite thing to do is be strategic with clients um i love getting into creative conversations one of the benefits of what i talked about earlier around the lack of regulation is that gives us a lot of gray area to work in and and have sort of some fun in and take some risk in where you know if the law doesn't say you can't do it why don't we figure out a way that we're all comfortable doing it. Right. Um, so, so, you know, I think it's going to be getting creative and navigating some of the challenges that we've all talked about. Uh, I'm going to say tonight, I don't know when this gets released today. Um, but, but some of the challenges we've all talked about here together, um, navigating those things and being really creative doing it. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to sort of talk about the legal rules and the reimbursement and the regulations and how do we navigate those in a way that helps everybody be successful. Perfect. And Mitchell, any final thoughts? Yeah, I'll start with my bracket was already busted. So this is a definite second take here. Going to go with Alabama, Kansas State, Houston. And I'm going to go with Arkansas because Coach Musselman was the coach at University of Nevada when I was a season ticket holder. And he took us pretty deep there. So I'm on the must bus, as we like to say there. As far as 2.0, uh, I'm going to say it's it's going to really change the relationship between a patient instead of with a physician to a health system. And I think because as we look at building those equitable ROI models, we're going to be looking at leveraging technology and leveraging maybe non-clinical staff for some of these interventions and multiple different types of clinical staff that you'll be working with based on your need. And so I think that relationship will evolve from a patient to a primary care physician relationship to a patient to a system relationship where they're really building that network with them. And overall, I really like what Ashley said about building that equitable access for everybody. And I think as we look at it, it's really going to become a population health monitoring. And how do we do that and deliver that at scale, I think is going to be what we see as kind of the core focus. And the last thing I'll say, it's a challenge to all other healthcare professionals out there is this is something that's our responsibility to do. No person deserves to get less care than anybody else. So it's our job, our responsibility to ensure that every person, every patient gets the right care at the right time and they get that equitable access. And so no matter what side of the coin you are on, it's a challenge to you to help make us um, be able to deliver that to all of our patients. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, well said. I, I thought I thought for a second, even though this is an audio medium, you were going to be like the must bus, you know, after he won that game and rip off your jacket and your shirt, you know, at, at the end of that for, for a crescendo. But um, I completely agree. All right. Any final thoughts there, Nathan? Uh, yeah, I didn't do a bracket from the get go. I have to say it right. March Madness is one that I actually appreciate from a European perspective. It's more entertaining. It's a straight knockout. It's non this seven games at the end nonsense, which I don't understand. But regardless, I've cheated a little bit at the end because I've got a last 16 already. But I've got Alabama 
who are just a natural powerhouse, aren't they? Let's be honest. Uh, the Huskies have the most wins in history, if I'm not correct. Um, Michigan State, I saw a 30 30 once, so it made sense to put them in. And my boys, the Longhorns, I've got to win. I've actually got a Longhorns jersey somewhere, so I am a, an official fan of the Longhorns. That's fine. Um, but key areas, I guess my company can help and why to be in touch with me. So happy to chat about anything talent uh, in RPM. So whether that's on company perspective and you're hiring or you're someone looking to work in the space, you can find me on LinkedIn. We can stay connected there. And, and interestingly, I'm going to post this soon on my LinkedIn page. We are doing a salary insights on the RPM and digital health market. So it will be a five-minute anonymous salary survey, uh, which you'll fill in. And then once we've compiled all that data, we'll email that directly to you. So you can see all the results of that. Um, but ultimately, we'll use that to share with companies in the space as well to manage costings, understand talent value, see trends in talent demand across the space, and, and ultimately help build these great companies up. So, yeah, all of that's on LinkedIn. Um, find me there. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on again. Well, Mitchell, Ashley, Caitlin, and Nathan, so much knowledge. Uh, thank you guys for being a part of you know what's going to be part one of the first annual, I guess, RPM March Madness. So thank you all, and um, all the listeners will be super thankful for all of this RPM knowledge. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the podcast. Make sure to subscribe and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to share inside the Digital Health and Sales Locker Room podcast for any digital health or sales leader that might be interested. Looking to grow your professional and personal network? Make sure to sign up now for the Young Health Leaders Summit sponsored by Advancement League. And make sure to use the code Team Josh for discounted registration. More details available in the newsletter or in the show notes. Stay tuned for the RPM March Madness podcast, where it's a special three-part series bringing together some of the brightest spines in digital health, RPM, and healthcare together for a fun March Madness-themed podcast extravaganza. Thanks.